George Knapp is an award-winning investigative journalist and television anchorman. Since 1995, he's been chief reporter for the I-Team investigative unit at KLAS-TV Channel 8 in Las Vegas. George has won several journalism awards covering political corruption and the mob, but he's best known outside the Las Vegas area for his work investigating UFOs and reporting on nearby Area 51. In 1990, Mr. Knapp's series about UFOs was selected by United Press International as Best in the Nation for Individual Achievement by a Journalist. He recently teamed up with Dr. Cullum Kelleher to investigate and publish a book about the unexplained paranormal activities at a ranch in Utah. Welcome, George. Good evening. Great Th to be here. Thanks That's so much great. for joining us. <laughs> well, this Skinwalker Ranch seems like quite the place, uh, the the view is gorgeous there in Utah, but what was the Gorman? The Gorman family lived there. What was their first clue that something wasn't quite what they had planned on? Well, on the, on the first day, they moved onto this property, and we're talking about a, a absolutely breathtaking uh, a piece of property, a 480-acre ranch. It, it was a dream come true for them. They wanted to raise high-end uh, cattle, artificial insemination cattle, and this was um, this was a, a culmination of a lifetime dream for them. But on the first day they moved in, uh, they're unloading their stuff and uh, out near a corral, which is uh, right near the the main ranch house. And they see this large animal. They thought at first it might be a really big dog across the pasture, and then they realized it was a wolf. And this is a wolf the size of a small horse. It starts uh, making its way, sort of meandering toward the family, uh, slowly and cautiously. Uh, its head down, almost like it was a tame animal. It had rained that day, so uh, when the uh, when the animal got within about 10 feet of the family, they could smell the, uh, the smell of a wet dog. And they thought to themselves, wow, we didn't, we didn't know that there were wolves in the area, let alone tame wolves. This must be somebody's pet. And it sort of walked toward the family, and the, the rancher even petted the thing. And as it's standing there, they had unloaded uh, several uh, calves into this corral, and one of the calves stuck its, its head out of the metal bars, and this wolf leaped uh, in, a, in an instant toward this calf, chomped down on its head and started trying to drag it out of the bars. The rancher jumps and grabs this baseball bat that they'd just unloaded, whacks this wolf on the back three or four times, heavy, heavy blows. It doesn't even make a sound, doesn't, doesn't flinch, doesn't uh, squeal, anything. He sends his kid to, uh, a few feet away to the truck to grab a handgun, 357 Magnum, one of the most powerful handguns in the world, and uh, and shoots this wolf at point blank range. Doesn't make a sound. Doesn't make any impact whatsoever. Shoots it again. No blood. No reaction. It's still pulling this calf out of the out of the bars. The calf is uh, bleeding and and in obvious distress. Shoots it a third time. And again, no reaction whatsoever. They, he sends his dad to the ranch house, grabs a uh, powerful hunting rifle, a thirty odd six, which is capable of, uh, capable of bringing down like a an elk at a considerable distance, mm -hmm. blasts this wolf a fourth shot. That's the point at which the wolf dropped the uh, dropped the calf and just stood there, still not bleeding, not making any signs of distress whatsoever. Shoots it a fifth time, and a big chunk of flesh and fur flies off the. Uh, uh, off the body of this thing and lands on the grass and the wolf just sort of looks at him backs away a little bit and starts walking away back where it had come well they're they're obviously uh confused about what was going on they grabbed another gun and decided to go after it you can't have a wolf with five bullet in it, bullets in it uh, wandering around on your property so they followed it uh, across the pasture 
into this marshy area that gets next to a creek that borders the property, and it's no problem to follow the tracks because this thing weighed two, 250 pounds, so it was leaving <clears throat> thick, uh, deep tracks in the mud. Right. And as they're following it, they come into this clearing, following the tracks, and poof, they, they end. Uh, there's no way that the, the, as if this wolf had just been sucked up into the sky, the tracks just ended, and uh, they were uh, pretty upset. Now, they walked back toward the, where the, uh, the ranch house was and the corral was, and they picked up the piece of flesh that had flown off, and uh, it, it looked like meat that had been left out in the sun for a couple of days. It smelled rotten. Um, later, and, and I, I know I'm jumping ahead, but later, after the NIDS team, scientific team, uh, uh, got involved in the investigation of things that went on, they sort of created a, a, a lineup of uh, wolf species, and they, the family all picked out this particular wolf and said, yeah, that's the one. Well, the one they picked out was called, is known as a dire wolf. The dire wolf uh, became extinct 10,000 years ago. That's so right. We they just were very saw upset. Those. That was day one, but they tried to put it out of their mind, and uh, that was just the beginning. And they had oh quite a bunch God. of experiences. We just <clears throat> saw about the dire wolves in, at the yeah. uh, place in, in, Las Ve- in Los Angeles at the La Brea Tar Pits, where there were many skulls of these dire wolves, and they were, but they weren't anywhere near 250 pounds. They were small little wolves. Well, no, this, this was obviously very strange, and but it wasn't the last of the strange animals. I mean, over the next the course of the next couple of months, they saw other animals that simply didn't belong there. I mean, some of them were fairly benign. For example really colorful red birds, not native to the area, not known to fly through or migrate through the area, that uh, stuck around the house for a couple of days. It looked like they'd, they would be more at home in an Amazon rainforest. Then they, they came home one day, and there was something that looked like a 200-pound uh, uh, stocky, squat, muscular uh, hyena-type uh, animal that was attacking their, their horses in the corral. Now, this uh, hyena looked um, like no other animal they'd ever seen. It had this big, red, bushy tail, almost like a fox. The rancher jumps out and starts running at it. It took off, uh, jumped out of the corral, and went uh, up a a hill and basically disappeared. And there's no explanation for for this kind of animal, and they wondered if they had been imagining it, except for the fact that this thing had slashed the the legs and flanks of several of their horses. So uh, the damage was very real. George, getting back to that wolf, I mean, what's the uh, synopsis? What what do you think it is or was? Where did it come from? Any any I I don't really know. As we'll get into this discussion, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, one theory is that it came from somewhere else. I mean, the the strange stuff that happened at this particular property suggests that maybe it's some sort of a portal that, uh, you know, the Irish have a a saying, uh, places in the world where the world is thin. And that seems to be what was going on at the ranch, because things were coming in and out from somewhere else, another world, another dimension, something of that sort, including UFOs and uh, uh, Sasquatch-type beings and uh, uh, poltergeist-type activity. And I'll tell you any details you want to know about any of that. George, one of the things I found really interesting when I was reading this book were the stories of these UFOs that were almost like recreational vehicles. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, they, they saw uh, all sorts of UFOs of various shapes and sizes. The first one they saw, they, they thought that it was uh, an RV that somehow got into the property. Now, <laughs> there's only one way into this into, into the ranch, and it goes right by the ranch house. So there's no way an RV or anything else could get in there without them seeing it. But uh, there they are, the, the rancher and his son, out one evening, and they see these headlights, what they thought were headlights, in the third homestead. They thought, well, somebody somehow got in here and got stuck in an RV. Let's go down there and try to help them out. 
as they start walking toward it, it starts driving toward them. These headlights getting closer and closer. But as it got closer and closer, uh, they could see a big square Winnebago-looking thing. It started rising off the ground, rose straight up higher than the trees, and zipped into the sky and disappeared. So obviously that was no uh, that was no Winnebago. <laughs> I don't think so. They 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 saw a, a number of other different kinds of UFOs, uh, stealth-like craft that were completely silent with these like disco lights on on the outside. They saw these. Uh, they started seeing these orbs. First, there were these big orange things that were that were almost like a sun in the sky. And uh, and uh, if you looked at it through a scope, which the rancher did many times. It looked like you could, in the, it, it's nighttime on, on the Utah property, but they were looking through it, and it was daytime in another sky on the other side, and things would fly in and out, almost again like it was some sort of a portal. We've they started those. seeing these uh, smaller orbs, uh, uh, white ones that would zip around the property, then these, these red objects that really scared the hell out of their uh, livestock. The cattle would, would stampede, the horses would get uh, paralyzed with fear. And then these blue things showed up. I call them the blue meanies. They're about softball-sized objects. They were uh, appeared to be made out of glass, the exterior, and inside there were this boiling blue liquid. These things were able to sort of somehow somehow touch the uh, the fear centers in the human brain because they would scare the the family way beyond what what would be normal. I mean, you know, obviously they'd be frightened of it, but I mean, frightened to the point of where you want to fall down on your knees and just whimper. Uh, these things caused all kinds of trouble uh, for the family and uh, were only part of a small part of all the UFOs that they saw during their 20 months on the ranch. Did the, were those the lights? I know that there were numerous cattle mutilations on this ranch. Did they ever see any of these kinds of lights or orbs when that was going on or before well, that had happened? Well, they always saw them uh, in association with the activity. They never saw any lights actually perform a mutilation. In fact, they never saw uh, anyone perform a mutilation. Perhaps the most dramatic uh, mutilation incident occurred on a Sunday morning 10 o'clock in the morning, bright day, not a cloud in the sky. There had been several calves born overnight, so the rancher and his wife go out onto their pasture. They're going to tag the ears, which is what they do, tag the ears of the newborn calf. So there was one that was perhaps 50 yards away from the ranch house where they, they sleep. They tagged that one, went across the pasture, and, and, you know, this is flat land. You can see there's no problem. There, it takes about 35, 40 minutes later one of their dogs uh, is is barking and making a growling noise, looking back in the direction of the first calf that they had tagged. They turn around and look, and they see the mother cow sort of dragging its hind leg, turning around in circles, its eyes bulging out with fear. So they go running back over there, and this calf that they had just tagged had been completely stripped of its flesh. I mean, there is no blood in the animal. There's no flesh on its bones. Nothing but skin and bones is, is what's left. No blood, no tracks, no anything. I mean, there's no such thing as a predator that can uh, eat 75 pounds of meat in a couple of minutes and not be detected by them whatsoever. Uh, NIDS, the uh, team that we'll talk about, the scientific team, was there in a, in a matter of hours, did a scientific investigation. They sent uh, tissue and, and bone samples to two independent labs. They, they concluded, under microscopic observation, that two different uh, cutting instruments had been used something really heavy like a machete uh, to, to do most of the damage, and then something very sharp and small like a scalpel uh, to slice away uh, the rest. The ear that they had just tagged was completely gone, as was most of everything else. Uh, this family suffered uh, the loss of 14 
very expensive animals in a short period of time, and they were uh, on the verge of economic ruin when the, the Las Vegas team uh, sort of came to the rescue. Yeah, tell, tell our viewers, many people may not be aware of NIDS. Can you describe that uh, organization for NIDS us? NIDS is the National Institute for Discovery Science. It was funded by, uh, founded and funded by a Las Vegas businessman named Robert Bigelow, who's a, a wealthy man with a, an interest in paranormal topics. He sort of, like the rest of us, grew weary of the uh, uh, pseudo-experts who populate the UFO and paranormal field, so he assembled a world-class scientific advisory board. He hired uh, Ph.D.-level physicists and, and scientists to, to uh, act as the staff, and he basically created a rapid response team for uh, paranormal events so that if uh, there's a UFO outbreak in South Dakota, they could jump on a plane and go investigate. Uh, a lot of what they did were cattle mutilation investigations across the country. As you know, there have been more than 10,000 of these incidents reported since the late 60s. Right. Uh, not a single uh, culprit has ever been caught. Most of the classic signs that, uh, that we know about from cattle mutilations were seen there on the ranch. A lot of their animals just disappeared altogether. Uh, for example, a, a cow, a cow's tracks, they could track it in the snow. It walks out into a bluff, and the tracks just end. The cow, the cow is gone. Uh, they had a lot of incidents like that. It was very disturbing, as you might imagine. When the, so, oh, sorry. So, we, I mean, George, when these cows are uh, mutilated the way they are, the thing that gets me is is no blood. No, I mean, that, that what possibly uh, could be going on there? Well, exactly. If it were a predator that was ripping flesh and, uh, and, and bone and things of that sort, you'd have blood uh, on the ground. You'd have tracks and evidence that could, that could be analyzed. Uh, NIDS did a lot of experiments uh, with the... With the the uh, mutilated calves, um, where they would uh, get calves' blood, throw it on the grass just to see how quickly it would uh, sink into the into the soil, and whether they, you know, that was the answer to the mystery. And obviously, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, Nids entered the uh, the picture of the Utah Ranch in 1996 after this family was just completely decimated and didn't know what to do. There was a newspaper article about what, what was going on at the property. It came to the attention of Bob Bigelow, who flew up there, bought the ranch, talked the, the uh, ranching family, the Gormans, into staying on for a while. Um, they put uh, uh, their own herd of cattle out there almost as bait to invite whatever this entity or, or force was uh, so they could encounter it. They, uh, they uh, put cameras and scientific monitoring gear all over the ranch. They set up observation um, positions um, and posts. They were on the property, you know, 24-7, looking to document whatever they could yeah. over a long, long period of time. During their years on the ranch, a seven-year period, they, uh, you know, it was like a cone of silence. They didn't want a lot of interlopers. They didn't want UFO crazies coming and camping out and having tailgate parties and interfering uh, because they knew that whatever this entity or presence was, there was a very strong interactive quality. It seemed to interact with humans. It seemed to react to certain kind of situations and events, and they didn't want any interference. So um, during this study, the only person who was allowed outside of NIDS to know what was going on was me. You were trusted enough by the folks at NIDS to come on out and do a story. What happened to you while you were out there? Did you experience any of these phenomena? I did not. I mean, there was one sort of dramatic incident. Uh, you know, the, the NIDS guys came to uh, conclude that uh, they had a term for what this was, a precognitive sentient entity. It was some sort of an intelligence uh, from somewhere else that we don't understand. It was kind of a trickster uh, as well. It would uh, play mind games with people. It did it to the family that lived there. It did it to the scientists. 
it would react to certain things that would happen. For example, if you dig in the ground, uh, it seemed to, to manifest itself in different ways. If you made a lot of noise, uh, the arrival of strangers, uh, building a fire out on the property, that kind of thing would set it off. Um, and it would, uh, it would, you know, it was very frustrating for the scientific team because you could never count on anything reproducing itself. It never reacted in the same way. You put the cameras up to, to look in one area, things would happen in completely the opposite way. In fact, it, just uh, allow me to digress for a moment. The most frightening things to me that happened uh, were not the big incidents, and there were a lot of those big and dramatic and dangerous incidents, but the small ones. The family was tortured with, like, poltergeist-type activity. They would, um, things would disappear. They'd move around. They'd hear voices and see shadows in the house. Things would appear at, at their window and eventually at their bed. Uh, they would speak in strange languages that they didn't understand, almost in mocking tone. Uh, spatulas, frying pans, tools, things of that sort would disappear then reappear in strange places. Uh, one, in one incident, the, the mom goes grocery shopping, uh, buys enough food for a couple of weeks, comes home, unloads all the stuff out of the bags, puts it in the cupboards, goes to the bathroom, comes back out, all the food's back in the bags again. Or the dad who is out in the range using a, a heavy post hole digger. He stops to take a wipe his brow, take a drink of water, looks back, and the post hole digger is gone. It didn't pop up for several days, and he found it 30 feet up in a tree. Things like that, poltergeist-type activity, just messing with their heads. The same things sort of happened to the NIDS team. Well, when I went there, I never really saw any of the strange activity, but by the time I was allowed onto the property, things had sort of died down a bit. This thing sort of went underground because it didn't like being hunted by the NIDS team. One thing they did do, though, um, uh, I, I mentioned all the things that sort of set it off. Uh, they decided to use me as bait. In the, same, uh, in the same area where several mutilations had happened and strange creatures had appeared, they put me out on this, uh, this plastic chair and just sort of left me there to see what would come and get me. Uh, okay. Prior to that, we got an earth mover out. We dug up in the ground. We made a lot of noise. We built a fire. So we tried to, tried to engage this thing and, and tick it off a little bit to see if it, it would uh, react. Uh, I sat there for a while. The only thing that came to get me were mosquitoes. But I can tell you, I'd like to believe I'm a really brave guy, but uh, it, it was a pretty tense couple of moments. George Nonetheless, uh, although I had no personal experiences, I've interviewed all of the NID scientists, uh, many of the Native Americans who, who give the title to our book, The, the Hunt for the Skinwalker. Uh, they don't go on the property. They believe it to be cursed. I interviewed all the, all the neighbors. This particular area has been the site of uh, uh, unimaginable paranormal activity for at least 50 years and probably a lot, uh, a lot more. One hint of that, George, when I first started reading the book, it kind of sent shivers up my spine because there were, there were, the wife noticed that there were like iron rings at each end of the house, and she felt that it had been a place where dogs had been tied, perhaps for protection. Yeah, when the family first moved in, they noticed these huge stakes and big chains at both ends of the of the house, as if they'd had guard dogs there to ward off something bad. Every uh, every door had double latches inside and out. All the cupboards inside had these latches, as if as if uh, the family that lived there before was well aware of of the capabilities of this trickster phenomena, whatever it was. Uh, you know, you'd have things like the mom would take a, a shower every morning. She'd uh, go into the bathroom, lock the door, put her uh, her towel and her hairbrush on the cabinet. 
she'd uh, get out of the shower and they'd be gone. Then she'd find them uh, hours later, uh, the the towel in the microwave and the wow. hairbrush in the freezer, that sort of thing. Very spooky stuff. <laughs> that would drive you crazy. Well, it would I just guess, make you so I, aggravated. I guess there could be prankster ghost extraterrestrials. <laughs> Maybe. Well, I, I mean, you know, if you had to guess, and we do in the book, we had to guess that uh, maybe there's a connection between all of these sorts of phenomena. Maybe it's a... Uh, Maybe it's, we call it paranormal, but maybe there's a scientific explanation that's just outside of our grasp. We came to believe that maybe this was a dimensional portal, that uh, there's some kind of intelligence that was operating there that was sort of a, uh, it was a learning curve almost. It was uh, toying uh, with us, it was toying with the, the family that was there, uh, almost uh, not necessarily destructive to humans. Uh, but certainly to animals, certainly. And almost leading us down a path and trying to make us understand something. At least that's what we, we came out of it with. With that impression. Now, um, some people assumed that because it was relatively close to some military op uh, installations, that it could have been you know, something where the military was involved doing mind games or even trying to take the ranch away. Was there anything that NIDS or you experienced or anybody that would lead you to think that they had any involvement? Not at all. Uh, uh, there's no military base anywhere near there, not within 100 miles. Now, uh, on occasion, some of the witnesses said that they saw a military-type uh, personnel observing, but it could be that they were trying to figure out what was going on there as well. I'll, I'll put it this way. Uh, what Delta Force commando gets the assignment to sneak into the <laughs> locked bathroom to steal the towel and the hairbrush? Uh, what uh, what uh, Delta Force uh, team could uh, pull off the mutilation of that calf yeah. in broad daylight without making any noise, uh, making any sound, and leaving any blood. It, uh, we examined, in the book, we examined the possibility that it's military. We can't rule it out entirely, uh, but it doesn't fit the facts. Now, if the military wanted that property for some reason, uh, they could do what they've always done, what they've always done at Area 51, just steal it. Yeah. Yeah, they can just go in and take it and say, national security, tough luck, you're out of here. Yeah, this, yeah. this, pro this property has been the site of uh, paranormal stuff for as long as anyone can remember. It's not a military uh, psychological operation because it's been going on at least 50 years, and according to the Utes, probably hundreds of years. Uh, our military is not responsible for this. George, you know, uh, neither of us are very far from Area 51, and you've done a lot of research on that mysterious place. Have you learned anything about it that would have you believe that there are uh, extraterrestrial craft or uh, beings up, up there? Well, if, if they were ever there, they're not there anymore. Uh, because uh, for better or worse, I mean, the stories that, that I did back in 1989 sort of put the Area 51 on the map. I mean, other than people who had served there, uh, I don't think uh, anyone had ever heard of the place. And now, as you both know, uh, it's a, a worldwide phenomena. It's a household name. It's, uh, you know, it's inspired all sorts of cottage industries and movies and TV shows and books. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I believe that at one point there was something that looks like flying saucers up there. Uh, we have some testimony, as you know, from Bob Lazar and, and several others yeah. who suggest that we were not building these craft. We were, in fact, taking them apart to figure how, out how they worked. Now, I don't think that we're ever going to prove that one way or another. I, I have my own uh, feelings that, uh, that it was true to some extent. Uh, but in the uh, interim years, I mean, uh, intervening years, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people have gone up there to check it out for themselves. And um, and I don't think that it would make much sense for the, the military to still have those things out there. 
Yeah, certainly I, not testing them and flying them in the open airspace. Truly, we've we've we sent you actually some some video of of things, and people have said to us, "Oh, that's just test craft from Area 51." But the same things have been going on for years and years and years in the same area. It doesn't make much sense. But we haven't really seen anything, and we're pretty close. We've got a pretty clear shot that yeah. there's anything really. Going George, on. do you ever keep in contact with Bob Lazar? I do. In fact, yeah. I talked to him uh, yesterday, Great. and um, and uh, we got some some. Uh, future projects in mind. Uh, Bob's doing well. He lives in New Mexico. He has a, a scientific company called United uh, Nuclear, where he sells things over the internet, scientific stuff and fun gear. Uh, he's doing well. And, and uh, you know, it's one of the things that people consider him a UFO guy. <clears throat> he wasn't a UFO guy before these stories aired. He's not a UFO guy now. He has very little respect for the field, uh, thinks that, the, uh, you know, there are a lot of crazies involved. Right. He's taken a lot of hits uh, as a result. I mean, his life has changed, as mine has, um, but he's okay with it. You know, I, I don't think it's a, a mystery that's ever going to be solved. I don't think there's any possibility that the military is ever going to, you know, open up the gates, hey, here's the saucers, come in and kick the tires kind of a thing. <laughs> there was a congressional investigator that I worked with for uh, some years who went out there after being briefed by me and looked around and, and went to the places that Lazar had talked about looking for evidence of this he was convinced that it was true but he said uh, he told me look when this comes out it, it people are going to go to jail uh, it's not a matter of uh, I, I don't think it's so much a matter for the military folks of hiding this from the public and saving us from the reality that ETs or whatever are real right. it's more a matter of covering their own butts because they've they've uh, squandered and and uh, diverted millions and millions of dollars of legitimate national security funds over the years to keep this cover-up going. Uh, they've, uh, they've played mind games with the public. They've lied to Congress. And I don't and, think and they're going to stop that they anytime. would go to jail if it ever comes out. Right. George, for the record, I believe Bob Lazar. And um, I think you do, too. Thanks so much, George. It was a great interview, and have a great evening. Thanks very much. Thanks, Bye. George. Appreciate it.